summarize her question for our listeners. Um, basically, the, uh, the question has to do with uh, work and how the, um, uh, the individual at work is basically being forced to accept some of the, the woke diversity, equity, and inclusion ideas. And she's wanted to establish her own group for believers and is not being allowed to do that. That'd be a fair summary. And she's now, she's written about, written to those in authority to, to request this and they are saying no and she's wanting to know our thoughts on what to do going forward. Uh, just a couple of thoughts. Thanks for sharing that because I think that's a perfect story for just showing how real this is for people, right? This isn't something that's out there. It's it's in our workplaces and we have to deal with it. Um, so I think for me, I'm always asking in a situation like that too, what, what tactic is being used? And one of the tactics, and I didn't talk about it too much here, but um, the uh, kind of the woke ideology it, it loves to you know def, you know get you into groups and get those you know kind of get everyone into little groups and get you kind of separated from each other right it's very much focused on that we want to define everyone by these little groups okay uh, so you know 10 years ago in workplaces they would never have done that right you know you're you're not there to be a part of a group you're just there to do a job right but now they want you to get into groups and kind of define yourself by your groups. So I guess one way I would, you know, I would respond is not necessarily to say, okay, I want to form my group, my Christian group, vis-a-vis these other groups, even though I totally understand what you're doing, but I would maybe push back against the whole idea of forming these groups in the first place. Like, isn't that going to create tension and potentially some conflict amongst workers that's not necessary, you know, um, you know, so I, I might raise a concern about just the whole idea of like having these little groups in the first place. Well, that was yeah. kind of my thought was, yeah. well, if I ask for an affinity group that does the opposite thing, maybe yeah. they're going to realize this will be a, a bad idea. <laughs> so we're going to drop the affinity groups. Yeah, so yeah. So it's, it's kind of a, kind of against the division and pushing for unity. I think we have to be people that are kind of pushing for unity. Uh, right now, I, you know, as far as practical, you know, it, that's it's hard for me to say. Here's what you ought to do. I think it's just going to require wisdom for you being on the ground in that place. But there, it might be good for you in advance to draw your lines, though, and say, you know, I'll work here and contribute and honor my boss and you know honor God up to this point. You know, like here's my lines and start to kind of define those for yourself now and. and uh, don't be afraid to, like, if they cross the line, you know, God's got you. So, yeah. I think that's good. I think that's good. Good advice. Yeah, but what's your advice, Pastor? <laughs> <laughs> the strategies are so broad. That's yeah. kind of the reason why I didn't want to go into it. Um, but I was also wondering, because this is a, this here is a gooseneck mic. It generally picks up Omni really well if the if there was some equidistance there and the mic was standing straight up. Can uh, can our sound guy in the back determine whether or not the questions are being picked up? Can you guys tell back there whether Could the, you hear Michelle? The, could you hear Michelle? My, okay. Based on our use of it before, 
Probably not. Okay. That's why I tried to summarize and repeat the oh, okay. question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Got it. We'll leave it alone then. Your your question and uh, examples to me all those are good. I'm I, I'm identifying you as a person that might be quite different, Michelle, than a lot of. So we're all different as believers, and we're going to all approach how we address our context based upon our confidence, our skill set, etc. So I'm not kind of into a, a particular modality. For me, it's about where your gifting is and where God may be compelling you. I, I, I sense that you are much more um, a proactive, confrontational person like myself, which I don't mind then raising the level of consciousness in our environment to demonstrate that the contradictions are going to be obvious if you keep going down this path. Hmm. Let me give you a reason. And then you gave one, which is what we really want to do. Demonstrate that this is not a good policy hmm. for this reason, that reason, or the other. She's not going on the attack so much as is broadening the collective consciousness of that um, workplace. And that's a good thing, too, because it can be, it can be just that tilt that will cause people to realize, hey, you know, she's right. We better be careful about pushing this thing. Because a lot of this is coming from the top down. It's not, it's not uh, born and bred in-house. So a lot of people in the workplace don't agree with it, but they push it anyway. So when the employee, such as yourself, pushes back a little bit, I think you were gracious. I think you were smart. They can't really say much about that. Mm. If they mm. did something illegal or wanted to uh, reprimand you, then you might, if you want to push a little bit, be ready to do uh, the legal route. Because I can tell y'all stories, because we got them all in our church, and I'm very happy to say that. We've got people who are not going for the soft tyranny of this neo-Marxist agenda. Mm. Hope that helps. Well, one of the things I said to them in my response about the gay pride flag was, you know, if somebody had sent out a swastika to celebrate German pride, there Amen. would be all kinds of Amen. fear and uproar to Amen. a Christian. I mean, I pointed out scriptures that say that this kind of sexuality is wrong. In fact, the abomination is the word they use. I said, you know, you would never let the neo-Nazis send the swastika to celebrate German pride, but you're letting the LGBTQs do the exact same thing to Christians. And, well, that wasn't directed specifically to you. That was just sent to the office. Okay, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but I kind of have been at a loss where to follow up from, from there, so I've kind of let it go for a while. I, I think Je Pastor Jesse brings up an excellent point, though. It'd be fun to know how many employees themselves, because I think this is coming, most of this comes from human resources, um, which is one of those areas that seems to be really captured. <laughs> yeah. And uh, But how many employees agree with this idea of kind of forming these groups and kind of, you know, and if a, a number of them don't, maybe you could collectively kind of share your voice again uh, with human resources and say, well, you, know, well, you know, maybe you have good intentions, but we're not really interested in in this approach and see if they give you a listen. So I don't know what the right, you know, it's tough, but. Um, wait on it, wait yeah. on it, wait on it. Remember Animal Farm. 
Mm. Remember mm. Aldous Huxley's, mm. you know, uh, Brave New World. There are ways to deal with it. And on Animal Farm, what the animals did was to gather together, which mm. is what they don't want us to do. Exactly. Gather together quietly, talk about these policies, see where they're coming from. And if you have a united front, you might be able to be a little bit more active in pushing back on it. Yeah, right. See what I'm saying? That's, yeah, that's well, good advice. Is it's not coming directly from my employer. It's coming from the Association, sure. Which is, I mean, it's all over the state. I don't really know the people. Top down. So much of this is top down. Yeah. It's really being pushed top down. Mm -hmm. Sure is, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Bobby. Um, my question is kind of open ended, so young man with good advice. Um, so I'm in the PCA. There's a lot of really prominent pastors in the PCA. Um, and I was wondering kind of how you approach the idea when you have some um, lead ministers and pastors who have had uh, decades of doing a good ministry and then start saying a couple of things, like maybe one apologizing for its whiteness, or another one directly saying you can't be a Christian without caring about social justice. When those things start sprinkling in, um, should it change how you see their ministry in the Tesla, or just be like a newer thing? Like, how do you approach when you see that happening? with some prominent figures who have had decades of doing good work, and I'll start to say these things that are connected with um, some really evil downfalls. I'm not sure how to work the question, but you know. Yeah, yeah just to uh, repeat Bobby's question, um, what do you do when a pastor has had a very good and effective ministry and sound and so forth for many years, uh, all of a sudden start here recently advocating at least in some ways for some of these critical theories how do you um, respond to their ministry as a whole is that is that a fair summary of of your question yeah okay um, I, I can i can easily respond to it but i'd love to hear from you guys so a couple thoughts um i i would say i think uh, I would start by assuming the best intentions. I think a lot of Christians, especially, they get caught up in this. Their intentions are good. They really do want to stand for justice, and they want to be against racism. And it, it is a Trojan horse. The other side has kind of camouflaged their ideology with all of this nice-sounding things. I mean, who wants to be against equity and diversity and inclusion, right? Um, and so their intentions are probably good. Uh, and so I would, I would always kind of start with that presupposition. But I would also say, um, I, would, I would say it would be good to have a conversation with them. And I, I would definitely not go back and say, oh, all of your past ministry is, <laughs> no. Uh, they're getting caught up in these ideas because they're percolating in the society, okay? And uh, so, but you might want to say, I'd, hey, you, I noticed you used that phrase, uh, social justice or white privilege or whatever it was. I would love to talk with you about that. I'm concerned about that. I've been hearing a lot about that. Would you be willing to talk? We have coffee. And just have a conversation, and maybe it would be an opportunity to share a book um, or an article and just talk about it. It may be the first time that they have been exposed to any of the stuff that we're talking about here. And so uh, engage is what I would suggest. But, but, it, but gently and assume the best intentions, especially on the part of the brother in Christ. So. I would add to that, Bobby. I think being in the PCA, of course, I might have in mind some people that you have in mind, but 
I, I would echo what Scott just said. I think some of them are speaking ignorantly. They're using the language because that's the language people are using, but they don't necessarily buy into it all. Um, but at the same time, you need to, you know, we need to press, press the point. What do you really mean by that? And, and do you actually mean this? Because this is what the other people mean when they say this, this language that you're using. And, uh, um, you know, one man in particular that I'm thinking of, I think is just um, unfortunately not speaking carefully. Another man, I think, has bought into it in the PCA. I'm not going to say names here at this point, but uh, so it, it takes some discernment. Um, now, you may not have the ability to talk to this person, but you could email them or, you know, those kind of things, too. And, uh, and just ask them some questions. Pastor Jesse, what are yeah. your thoughts? Let me give you a few angles. So I'm fairly close to the PCA, but I'm, I'm far enough away from it to be more objective. Um, and that matters. It matters when you're on the inside of a downgrade of your denomination, you can, you can actually... You can have a convoluted uh, perspective for many different reasons. We're complicated human beings. I've said that before. But being on the outside watching many of our PCA brethren, many of our OPC brethren, many of our SBC brethren across the spectrum, and many of them I've uh, rubbed shoulders with just in ministry across the board. And so uh, for decades I've been listening to certain men as we all should, particularly the ones who are given platforms for large influence. And you get to watch them gradually shift. So shifts are never overnight. Shifts are never uh, spontaneous. Shifts are always gradual and incremental. And often when um, a person comes to begin to express themselves in ways that are either um, unclear, I call it duplicitous, um, equivocating uh, language dynamics is a method of communicating that doesn't actually convey their honest opinion. Uh, and some men are good at that. Some men are very good at shrouding their intentions by um, very uh, thoughtful and prepared communication. Now, for me, that is not impressive. That's a problem. And, and, and I'm from the old school, you know. Um, and, and the old school was about perspicuity. Um, just as the scriptures have perspicuity, so the minister should have perspicuity. Um, and, and therefore, we are called to a level of clarity that does not leave the members or anyone listening to us um, ambiguous about what we mean. But we have been training people to buy into ambiguous speech, double talk, um, borderline, uh, unacceptable opinions relative to, to some of the modern issues. And it, it, it challenges you as a young person to ask yourself, what then are the acceptable parameters of what I would consider faithful or unfaithful proclamation? Because see, the proclamation is the issue. 
Um, I was always taught by my upline, if, if I wasn't certain about it, don't talk about it. Once I become certain about it, say it as if you know you believe it and you have biblical support for it and then suffer what may come because we can all be wrong. But I don't want to be wrong as a consequence of not being clear or not communicating clear. But I see the enemy does that almost all the time. He incrementally moves everybody to a place of being indecisive about what's being said. And you are now struggling with your allegiance because of a number of factors. And then all of a sudden, you find yourself in a position because of your relationship to that denomination or that person that that makes you now a compromiser. And you're a young person like all you guys are. As a young person, you don't have to go to this individual. That's not your job. And that's kind of what Scott was saying. You don't have to go to these guys who are high-platform guys. What you have to do is make sure that you don't allow your capacity for discerning the truth to be compromised by doublespeak. Because that happens a lot. And next thing you know, you are a um, what I've called a Christian agnostic. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. There are some men who speak in ways in which you can't quite nail them down. That's right. That's right. And they're trying to avoid being nailed down. So make sure that as you listen, don't commit yourself to them as if they are the Lord Jesus. Now, that's all you do. Keep yourself free. And if they go over the cliff, over the horizon, and you see them no more... Well, at least you didn't go over the horizon with them, okay? We're in some dangerous times, and I really want young people to be able to believe that they can discern right from wrong. Um, and so I hope that helps. That's good. Yeah. If, if I may add just briefly, um, <clears throat> tomorrow night I'm preaching on 1 Samuel 28. And last week I preached on chapter 27. And David went to Achish in Gath because he was afraid of Saul. And he doesn't tell Achish everything he's doing in Ziklag. It's some half-truths. Well, in chapter 28, verses 1 and 2, he finds himself between a rock and a hard place because he's doing this Christian agnosticism. You know, he, he says something to Achish, but he's not saying everything. I say that to say this. I think there are some leaders in the PCA and, and in other denominations who are um, kind of caught up in, in the language, in the, uh, the flow of where things are going. But when push comes to shove, I think they're going to land in the right place. Like David did in the end. I think there are some that are going to join with Saul or Achish. And they're, they're not going to be in the heavenly promised land. Thankfully, God knows who those are. But I do think that there are some people in the PCA in particular that are Davids at heart, but they're getting off track on some of this. And, uh, and so I'm praying for them as I'm trying to be discerning and helping people to discern what they're saying. So anyway, just a few thoughts to add to, Very good. to that. Very good, very good. Yes, Haley. We uh, had the privilege of hearing Nathaniel Jensen speak. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he is with, um, uh, I believe it's the Ark Encounter Creation Museum. And he's written a book called 
summarize summarize the question briefly um, using an analogy about putting pebbles in a shoe to make it uncomfortable you want to take your shoe off and get the stone out Um, using that imagery what then can we do to put pebbles in shoes of people we know and love who are buying into some of this critical thought to help them to reevaluate and to see the danger of this view and and to uphold the biblical view instead. Especially good questions that we can yes, ask. Yes, good questions that we could ask them. I've started twice. You start this time. I think that's a I think that's a good tactic. Um, for me, it would be maybe the question of where did that term come from? Like for instance, if, if they're buying into because the way this is working you are being taught to use terminology even if you don't understand its origins uh, to develop a common ground, okay? And, and this is everybody. This is a social engineering mechanism. So when they begin to use terms um, social justice, I would ask, do you know where that term came from? Can, can you help me with that? I, I, I get it in its sort of uh, generic non-framed context social justice sounds good but where does it come from because many many of us know where that term comes from in terms of a ideological development I would want to ask them that I would want to ask them what do they mean by fairness or what do they mean by equality that's kind of where I would start the reason why is because so much of this has a very long train with different compartments connected to it by which it runs through the different facets of our societal experience that an individual can be overwhelmed quickly with the kind of stuff you guys heard today. <clears throat> but it would be the slow process of asking them, can you, can you tell me what that means to you? Or where is the origin of that? And then also be ready to give them a brief, terse answer uh, relative to what you know about it. And uh, I think this is... Uh, I think this is about evangelism, even evangelism of the people of God. I know that sounds oxymoronic, but I think it's evangelism because we've gotten away from really the answer to all of our problems. We don't realize it. We let the rudder go uh, and, and the boat is just floating down the river without any capacity for guidance. 
Um, so I think it's kind of evangelism. If we can keep talking, maybe they'll be open to your answers to those questions uh, down the line. So I, I hope that's helpful. If I could add to her question, since that was my wife who asked the question, and I know the situation. Um, you know, so many people that, that we have heard that are advocates for the critical theory are because they've experienced some of the oppression or some of the racism or something like that. And they, and they say, well, yeah, I, I've, I've been with people, I've ministered to people who have uh, faced prejudice, who's faced certain kind of systemic racist problems that are there. And, 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 and I think part of what happens is those like in our camp, so to speak, who are against it, um, the people on the other side say, well, you're just ignoring reality. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so in addition to asking questions, do, what do you know what you're talking about? How, if I could add to her question, how would you respond to those who've experienced real racism, real oppression, and are thinking that the CRT solution is helpful? Very good. Well, just a couple. I I love your question. Um, I think uh, I do think this is an important tactic, and I've put quite a bit of thought into this myself and tried a few things out because I've noticed there's some sensitive areas where people that are real strong advocates for critical theory get a little uncomfortable. And one is um, when you show the overtly racist language that a lot of the key proponents are using. I put up a couple of quotes from Ta-Nehisi Coates earlier, and I mentioned, you know, if you change white with Jew, I mean, this would have been language Nazis would have used. He's not alone, and by the way, he's not some fringe character. I mean, he is a mainstream spokesperson for this ideology. Most children have had to read his books in school, Between the World and Me. And he uses overtly racist language. And so I I put that back to people. I read his quotes back and I say, are you comfortable with that kind of language? Where is that going to take us? Because it's over, it turns the tables because CRT posits itself as being anti-racist. And when you show that this is the most vile racist language that is being used anywhere, um, they struggle with that. And so that's one. I think another thing is the equity thing is is always kind of ripe for, <laughs> you know, they want to, um, they're always looking for disparities. So I, th- I always think of this example of the Minnesota public schools. Um, there was a disparity in terms of black-white students getting expelled. And um, they're never going to abs- subscribe the cause for the expulsions to the behavior of the students, right? That's, that's, that's individual responsibility. So it's always got to be a systemic cause and in this case it was systemic you know racism on the part of the teachers and the administrators Um, that's what they said anyways for this disparity that more blacks being expelled than whites as a percentage of the population so the policy they literally implemented was to expel the same number of students regardless of their behavior are you okay with that like put put those back to them and say what, what is that going to lead to? And you're seeing this in criminal justice right now, big time. Um, yeah. We're not going to hold people responsible for their behaviors, and we need equality of outcome. What's that going to lead to? I think people struggle with those things. They don't really have good answers, although they'll definitely try. <laughs> 
So I love your idea of pebbles, though. Just I think that's a great idea. You know, where where are they most kind of feeling like this is this is there's real obvious contradictions with this, and those there, there's more. But anyways, totally. Yeah. What are your what are your I didn't those tons I didn't respond to yours, Scott. Though you you're. Yeah. Do you want to add more? I, from what you were saying, which added some color to your wife's um, query and question, um, if I were dealing with them, and I have, particularly in my own community, so when a lot of this stuff came up early on, like I said, back in the um, election of Joe Biden, um, being an African-American, a lot of people were always surprised that, one, I didn't vote, I didn't vote for Obama, and I told them why. And I said, I can't vote for Obama just because he's black. That's one thing I said. I'm setting up something here. And I didn't vote for Trump. Uh, and I didn't vote for Trump just because he was some flamboyant, explicit expression against the leftist narrative. So we have this thing called the lesser of two evils. This is a, a paradigm trap, too. This is a, a false dichotomy as well. And, and I don't want to push too far into you, but I'm going to show you what I'm dealing with. As an African-American, black people were expecting me to obviously vote for Obama. Black people were expecting me, obviously, to vote for Hillary Clinton. Why? Because they had proffered the black vote because that's largely yeah. the block that they are able to hoodwink and manip uh, manipulate for many, many decades uh, under liberal uh, uh, democratic policies. It's just very clear. So we're dealing really here with racism in reverse, quite frankly. You need to be able to see that. I would be a racist to have voted for Obama just because he was black. Yeah. I would have been, you know, I would have been unbiblical to vote for Hillary just because she was the opposite of Donald Trump. This is called a false bifurcation argument. The lesser of two evils is not good for Christians. So um, the question we always have to ask is, are we driven by guilt? And if we are, is it true guilt or false guilt? Like you're using the example of knowing people who appear to have truly been, uh, you know, uh, harmed in terms of injustice, etc. Okay, maybe that's the case. But is the solution that is being offered the right solution? You guys understand what I'm getting at here? Very important because fear can cause you to uh, respond the wrong way and guilt can cause you to respond the wrong way. So we have to first be free of fear and free of guilt. Your decision has to be predicated upon an objective assessment of the facts at hand and then a biblical solution to the problem at hand, which would at, which would cause me to ask one more question. Is the solution they're wanting to render to these problems biblical? Is it God-honoring? Is it, is it Christian? If it's not, we need to step back from the table. So that's all I want to kind of share with on that. I just want to piggyback on that because I think your point is so important here. This is a real pebble, okay? Um, I use a quote sometimes in this context of, uh, I think her name is Ayanna Presley. She's a member of the House of Representatives from Massachusetts. And she's kind of got this quote where she was giving a speech at Netroots Nation. She said, we don't need any more black right. voices black faces who aren't going to be black voices. We don't need any more uh, queer voices, faces who aren't going to be queer voices. And it captured kind of so well the, the mindset of the ideology. If you're mm -hmm. 
black, you've got to think a certain way, you've got to vote a certain way. And what I like to do is I like to point out people like Larry Elder, for example. There's so many, especially in the black community. The black community, by and large, is not woke, in my view. And you could speak a lot more to this. I sure can. Uh, <laughs> but, but to point out that, and I've done this to my friends, you know, uh, but this, Larry Elder, for example, came right out in one of his programs and says, there, there is no systemic racism for blacks in America. So uh, I will put that to them and say, have you listened to this black voice? And they'll make excuses about how they have taken on white identity or whatever. But it's so when they do it, they catch themselves because they recognize they're saying something, number one, racist and dehumanizing. In other words, they're not dealing with the person as a person at that point. So it causes them to, even, you know, especially Christians, it's like, are you really ready to lump everyone together and expect that they're all going to act a certain way? Exactly. Don't, don't, you know, put, make them do that, <laughs> especially if they're a Christian, because it's so dehumanizing. They'll struggle with that, you know, so. Very good. Uh, if I could add an answer to, to this question, <clears throat> and it's something Naylene and I have talked about. I think one of the things that can be very helpful is knowing your facts, knowing your history. You know, like on this issue, especially of, uh, you mentioned systemic racism or whatever, um, or what we hear over and over again on the campaign trail right now, that we've got to vote against all MAGA because they're destroying America. Mm -hmm. And uh, whenever I hear that, it, it just, I don't know, for me anyway, it just rubs me the wrong way. Not because I'm a MAGA guy. Mm -hmm. It's because it's totally contrary to what's actually happened in our country. In the 1820s, the Democratic Party was formed to keep racism alive. Okay. Note the Republican Party wasn't formed until, what, 25 years later or That's something right. like that. That's right. And, and so when you hear about, well, the Republicans are racist, it's like, well, historically, that's not been the case at all. It's been the exact opposite. The, after um, President Lincoln signed the Emancipation and, and the war and so forth, it was the Democrats that brought in the Jim Crow laws. It was the Democrats that ran the Ku Klux Klan. It was the, the, the black community that became Republicans and, and went into office and so on and so forth. And so when I hear about oh, Republicans are racist, it's like, you don't know your history. So when people ask these kind of questions, I, I think this is another pebble that we can throw in the shoe, as it were, to, to just get them to think, well, wait a second, are, you're... you're, you're communicating a narrative like you were talking about before that's actually not true mm -hmm. are there republicans who are racist sure but that's not historically been the case so anyway just another thought to add to that <laughs> do we have another question jeremy um i love the focus as we're looking at uh, as we've been looking at the idea of crt uh, within the church and uh, I love the, the presentation of the, the Bible says this, CRT argues for this. Um, so uh, believers, a political believer would be concerned about that infiltrating the church, those views infiltrating the church. And I think Naylene had alluded to with kind of the pebbles idea was the idea that 
Uh, there are, have been some in the church that have swallowed this up without really realizing the consequences of it. So outside of, um, of what we might think as political uh, arguments, what would be the biblical consequences, the pebbles that, you know, uh, you know, that if you believe this view, it has this impact in your view of Scripture, what are some of those arguments that a believer could share with another believer mm -hmm. to put that pebble in their shoe? How might yeah. we respond uh, within the church yeah. to, these, uh, to these areas where we, uh, in essence, ask questions to try to stir them up, uh, stir their conscience up on this? Thanks. Yeah. So to try to summarize Jeremy's question, uh, what pebbles can we put in the shoe of a fellow believer Biblical arguments, biblical pebbles to, can you say, move them out of their syncretism yeah. to a more sound biblical view? Yes. Okay. I'll go quickly on this one, and Pastor Jesse, I'd love to hear it. I have two big ones for me that just for me anyways personally are huge. Uh, number one is that um, the critical theories put forward a false justification. Um, and it, it essentially says if, if, I'm, if I can claim victim status, then I'm innocent. And part of the reason that woke ideology is spreading so much is because everyone's got to deal with this issue of sin and guilt in their lives. And the gospel is the answer to that because it talks about the true, the true answer for that, which is the blood of Jesus and the gospel. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a false, false band-aid. It's saying if you can claim victim status, you're justified. You don't have to feel guilty anymore. It's a false gospel. And the Apostle Paul was so explicit on that. If anyone should come to you with a false gospel, men or angels, let him be accursed. And so that's a big one for me, is that I want Christians to see this as a false gospel. In this sense, it's putting forward a false way of being justified, of being innocent. It's not true. The second one for me is... Um, the division, um, the, the, the line dividing good and evil. Uh, okay, the Bible's really clear on this, okay? That line runs through every human heart. That's one of our sources of equality. We are all sinners. Mm -hmm. All have sinned. But this uh, ideology is drawing that line outside of the person, and it's drawing it between groups. And I don't care whenever that's happened, Jew, German, Hutu, Tutsi, black, white, it's, it's always going to lead to bloodshed. Always. And tribalism. It'll lead to that here. And it's wrong. It's just biblically wrong. That is not where you draw that line. And so, I just for me, those are two huge ones. Yeah, I'd love to hear yours. Yeah, that, those are great. They're very, very good. Um, I probably would start at um, discerning the propositions at hand. Mm. So um, the Bible is explicitly clear about us as Christians um, trying the spirits, whether they be of God or not. Mm. Uh, the scriptures are also explicit about proving all things and holding fast to that which is good. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse 21. The scriptures would tell us that we are to judge righteous judgment, not according to appearance. That's John eight twenty four. This is Jesus. Jesus says, do not judge according to the appearance. That's what we're doing here. Mm. All of this is horizontal, earthly appearance judging, judging after melanin, judging after the flesh. We are not dealing with it from a vertical standpoint. The Proverbs would tell you and I that there is a fundamental flaw 
in our judging mechanism as human beings. Proverbs 18, 17 says, the one that is first in his argument will appear just. And then his neighbor comes along and exposes him. So now I do articles on this all the time. So if you want to, you can, I'll give you my email. I've been doing this for years, deconstructing this from a biblical standpoint, showing the Christian that he or she does not have a right to assess these social, political, or spiritual arguments without the word of God as the basis of your filter for determining the validity of the argument and the righteousness, the, the methodology and its aim or outcome. So one of the problems that you and I are having today is that we are being defined by our emotions rather than as our identity, rather than our intellect. So God created us as an, an intellectual, emotional, and volitional creature. And we have been uh, emotionalized over the last four, five, six, seven decades to where our identity is rooted in how we feel. And so now feelings becomes the domain for atonement. It becomes the domain for reconciliation. It becomes the domain for being able to uh, do penance because we're really in a neo-religious context here with this whole critical race theory, social justice, wokeism. It's a new religion, but it's not Christianity and it's not evangelical and it's not Protestant. It is Catholic by nature. It is rooted in, and I don't mean to offend my Catholic friends, but it's rooted in a continual penance modality that never, ever resolves itself. So you're doing penance all the time, okay? Um, but, my, but his neighbor will come and spy him out. So when you and I are hearing propositions, get, ground yourself and think through what are they saying? And what does the Bible say about what they are saying? And then take your time and work on an answer to what they're saying. Because you and I are obligated to be patient, to be gentle, to be thoughtful, mm -hmm. and to give them a response that honors God. Mm -hmm. But see, we're not living in a culture anymore where Christians are ready to be that disciplined in their ability to deal with accusations or assertions or propositions. We all should be ready to give an answer to every man of the hope that is within us with meekness and with gentleness and fear. And so I would, I would say to your point, when we hear it, whether directly or indirectly, we should go to work within ourselves, uh, searching out the scriptures, determining, do they have a legitimacy, a legitimate claim in this particular area? How does the Bible speak to it? Or go and get resources by people who are capable of helping give terse and sharp answers to those particular questions. Because there are only about eight of them within the framework of the social justice and woke movement that you need to really be able to answer. And again, we do this because the average Christian does not have the capacity to do that hard work. And, uh, and that's the pastor's job, quite frankly, to make you equipped to these matters. It should be done, it can be done, and it gives the Christian more confidence to overcome their fear, overcome their guilt. See, because we're dealing with a conflation, again, of not only theology and, and, and politics, but sociology. See, the enemy knows that we are in a default mode as sinners. And so he's taking advantage of our weaknesses. My Caucasian brother, they're dealing with guilt. My black brother, they're dealing with uh, uh, anger if they buy into the proposition, right? And so anger fuels them to go at our Caucasian brothers on an emotional level. 
our Caucasian brethren are retreating on an emotional level. None of us are dealing with it on an objective truth claim level. And the Christian has to recover the ground upon which he addresses these things in a biblical way. So the Lord says he has not given us the spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. So that triad should be working in our life. Love means that I am willing to endure the accusation as long as I have an opportunity to respond. This is the jurisprudence of the Old Testament. If there is an accusation raised by one, let him raise it with his neighbor. And if they have no resolve, then they get another. That's what Jesus meant in John in Matthew chapter 15, verse 18, as you guys know. And if you can't get two to come and work it through, then you get three. Or you bring it to the church. In the Old Testament, it was really about not letting accusations just fly off the handle and condemn somebody. Hmm. No one gets to do that anywhere in God's world. Hmm. And so we have to become much more bold in terms of defending people and defending ideas, whether it's our Caucasian brothers or our black brothers or anybody else. We have to love righteousness enough to be ready to give them what I think is really important, a biblical answer to these matters, and it can be done. I hope that wasn't too long and, and drawn out. <laughs> it's important. You can be a boulder, not a <laughs> Jeremy Neil Neil Shenby has some yes, nice summary arguments for some of these things. You know, one of his well, I think you could say his main um, goal is apologetics, and I know you like apologetics and all that. So I think he would be very helpful for you. Yeah. Somebody in the back, I think. I Sue. Um, this kind of ties right in with what you just said. But I know myself, and I think it's part of all of us, it's very easy to see where the other person needs corrected. And very, very hard to really honestly face what needs corrected in ourselves. And I think it's very easy, especially like the, uh, the Tea Party movement or the mega, you know, we're going to make America great again. 
how, how can we summarize that here for everyone online? Um, Sue would be fair to summarize it by saying, um, we're, we're trying to point out the sin and the wrong ideas of these other worldviews. And, and um, in fact, some of the judgment we deserve as a nation accepting these things. Um, but, but, but then, yeah, how, how can we not become prideful and arrogant and think we have it all right? And, yeah, right, yeah. And, and yeah, seeing um, our own sin in the process. I mean, I just think you have a great point, and it's important to remember. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about that. You know, be quick to listen and be slow to speak and slow to anger. And, um, you know, get the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly, right? In other words, we've got our own problems and our own issues. And so I think humility is really important and a willingness to listen and... Uh, and uh, so I think your point is, is really well taken. At the same time, I, um, I think there is a, it's important for us not to be silenced either. If we see, if we see uh, truly evil ideas that are really destructive, you know, I, I think our motive really also has to be called into question here. Is our motive to, to beat up somebody, to win? That's not a God-honoring motive. Uh, you know, we're called to love our enemies. You know, we want to see them rescued from the hands of the evil one, you know. Um, so it has to be rooted in love. Even for our opponents, we want the best for them. So I think that motive is really important. If our motive is, you know, you're wrong, I'm right, you know, I'm going to show you you're wrong, I mean, you know, God's not going to honor that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Can I summarize your yes. thoughts this way, Suze? If 
the the religious right has lost some of its focus and that we are trying to set up our own utopia on earth rather than focusing on God's kingdom and having our view be that. Is that a fair summary of what you're driving at? So let me go back to why I said earlier I could talk for hours. <laughs> but I'm going to start at what I had stated in my opening presentation. Um, and I'm just going to talk about the problem of politics and religion, the inextricable nature of their complexity and their liability. And that is to say, um, politics is a dialectic. We didn't really talk about the dialectical process. We should have because it's a stratagem for compromise. Sometimes compromise is good, sometimes compromise is bad. But everything leading up to CRT at this point has been a dialectical process, going all the way back to critical theory, critical legal theory, critical feminist theory, critical gender theory, critical race theory. We're done with that now. But I wanna, I wanna talk about the Trump era, because Trump, for me, was one of the uh, signals of a pivotal moment for America and American Christianity. So I had stated openly, you guys, I didn't vote for Trump the first time. I didn't vote for him for the first time because for me, a biblical uh, understanding of qualified men in any position of leadership, whether it's in the government, public uh, service, or the um, military, what have you. What happened? Wherever we have to vote, those men have to be, for me, men of integrity. The Bible's clear. They should be lovers of truth, haters of covetousness. This would be true of the secular context as well, in my opinion, because leaders represent God. Uh, to, the deed that, to the degree that you and I fall prey to the false dichotomy of the lesser of two evils, to that degree we slide into the dialectical process and go from good to less good to lesser good to moderate good to no good to barely can stand it. <laughs> and this is what we've been doing in our politics for decades now. So um, if it wasn't for the fact that Hillary Clinton was so bad across her platform, her background, her history, um, I don't believe that... Um, Donald Trump would have necessarily won because if you guys remember the first time around he didn't bring to the table any of the uh, noble qualitatively good or um, hopeful or optimistic things that we as Christians would vote for. He did not. He just basically promised a lot of things and the one thing that he did promise was to make America great again and inferring from that we drew uh, a clear understanding that he was not going to be just another globalist token president of which we all were becoming extremely concerned about. I know you guys get that but see I had already made a very clear distinction between politics and religion at that level for me and so when he won it was basically um, okay Lord you're sovereign you voted him in he's to be prayed for we hope that he does half of what he said and, and Trump did way more than half of what he said 
And that's getting back to the issue that um, uh, Scott was talking about. If you know your history, if you know your facts, and maybe both Scott said this, when you know your facts, then you can actually militate against the propaganda that is inherently filled with lies about anyone at any time. There were a ton of lies that were spoken about Trump that amount to nothing but pejorative uh, ad hominems. And that's not a debate ground at all. When you see that all people are doing is rendering ad hominems, call it out for, for what it is. You're talking about his personality. You're talking about the way he talks, his syntax, all of that. That not, has nothing to do with what he did on a policy level, especially for Christians. So once he got in and started doing those things, because I had a voice where millions of people could hear me, I said, do you know what Trump just did? Do you know what he did? You know what he did and laid it out. And people began to see what he did this, he did that. I said, you're not going to get it in your major media outlets. That was year one. Year two. In year two, he started doing things behind the scenes, like actually rescuing Christians from different nations, which none of our presidents going all the way back to Ronald Reagan ever really did. For me, that was extremely important because I'm a mission-minded pastor and I love Christian missionary work. It is the most brave work you can do on the planet besides frontliners in, you know, in, 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 in pandemics, quite frankly. And it, it's probably higher than that in terms of the quality of the soul. The point is, is that uh, what, what we have always been in danger of as the Christian church is actually so integrating our identity as Christians with our politics is that we subsume our Christianity under our politics and get in trouble. This here is a perfect way to divide whites and blacks. It's a perfect way if you let your politics preeminent, rise above your Christian decorum, your Christian character, your Christian conviction, your Christian worldview, you're never going to meet your black brothers who are deceived and hoodwinked by leftist ideology because you're too busy being wrapped in the American flag. I know you guys understand what I'm saying. And so our black brothers and sisters that are trapped by the Marxist flag in the name of progressivism or in the name of uh, democratic uh, emotional care for them, which is all lies, the only way you're going to reach them as a Christian is to make sure that you uh, create enough distance between you and a kind of MAGA mantra, which I don't care anything about the MAGA mantra in terms of good or bad. I just want you to know, you got to actually understand you're dealing with two different things here, okay? Because you got to help your black brothers and sisters, your uh, colored folks, overcome the propaganda that has been foisted on them about Trump, first and foremost, which it has not been successfully done. Most of our African-American people who have, not, have no interest in studying politics or studying uh, sociology or understanding worldviews, they buy it hook, line, and sinker. And so um, there's no winning them that way. And it's getting back to what our sister is saying relative to um, the guilt that we have for uh, some measure of the crimes that have been committed historically. And I agree with her totally that as sinners, we are always vulnerable to accusation. As sinners, we are always vulnerable to the sword finding a hole in the chink in our armor and piercing us to where we have to go, except for the grace of God, there go I, right? 
that even when we wear a MAGA hat or say that we voted for Trump, we're going to have to take the good and the bad and the ugly with that. Because as you were stating, he was getting a little bit gaudy in his term terminology, but it wasn't gaudy enough for me. He was saying, scoot over God, let me sit on the throne with you. Before that, there was no God at all. We're going to make America great. I'm great. I'm this. I'm that. You guys know that's true. Even though he did a lot of good things, you and I know that God resists the proud. He resists the proud. And that's why our brother got knocked down. Even by something as horrible as what you and I saw, it was still a bringing him down because he didn't give God enough glory for all the things that he had an opportunity to massively do. And he underestimated the deep, deep, deep strategic state of the powers that are behind our politics. And had he overcome them that second round, some of my Christian brothers would have fallen into a kind of hyper uh, idolatry of Donald Trump at levels of saying things about him that would not have come across to any other ethnic group other than Trump worship. That will not work for the Christian church. You and I are Christians. We have one king of glory, the Lord Jesus. There's only one person that gets all the glory, and that's our triune God. And so Trump would have been a servant of God that we would have loved to honor and keep him in for two terms. I mean, we can only imagine, right? Because he did win many of the African-Americans. You have no idea. What he did in that first year drew a lot of African-Americans. Him helping schools, him giving money to institutions, to many of the universities. He did a ton of stuff of which the African-Americans on the ground knew it, but it would have never gotten aired publicly. The media would have never talked about any of this. I mean, I can tell you multi-millionaire African-Americans in all kinds of industries that you wouldn't even identify as conservative. They're still conservative. Because of the stuff he did. I'm talking about people in the music industry and in the entertainment industry and in Hollywood. Because, you know, just because you're in a particular community don't, doesn't mean that you don't have enough sense to be able to see whether a politician is following through with his words. And he did. But to finish, my dear sister, I think he didn't finish well that first time around. And he didn't exercise enough humility to ask God and to ask the nation and to ask the churches to pray that it would be God's decretive uh, determination that that man might be qualified for the next four years. I didn't hear that. He had a great opportunity to bring the church into the Oval Office and pray for him and pray for the Senate and pray for the whole Congress as we're called to pray for the whole of our leadership across America. You guys know that. That wasn't happening. There was a major divide between the left and the right. And it was almost to the point that the right is Christian and the left is not. And you know we can't do that. We cannot say the left is all bad and the right is all good we have now fallen prey to politics that is the dialectical process that's Hegel's dialectical process now I know that politics is a necessary evil and we're going to still engage you know that 
I wish it wasn't so, but I'm with my sister. I think that we are being disciplined as a nation because our Christianity has not met the challenge of remaining neutral, invested, committed, engaged, but neutral at the level of the bifurcation of right, good, left, bad. And so we, we're, that question is open right now, sister. I think we're under the judgment of God. I think America is under the judgment of God. And I think the church is under the judgment of God. And you and I can never do wrong when we engage somebody uh, with whom we're having a difference around critical race theory by first saying, you know what? Except for the grace of God, there go I. I'm just as guilty of what you're saying about me as what I'm saying about you. But can we stand on a platform of a biblical truth and begin to work these things out objectively and carefully and factually and graciously so that we can find a, a, a ground of unity so we can help our nation go forward? What's absolutely remarkable is that we're hearing from atheists, agnostics, and other communities trying to forge a unity that, that Brother Allen and I were talking about um, they're trying to forge a unity even though they have all these differences. And in fact, what's happening right now around these larger ideological battles is we're seeing agnostics and atheists coming to our community to help us because of how deeply they have pressed into these matters and did the research. James Lindsay is an absolute killer in this matter. I go all things James Lindsay. All things. If you're an egghead like I am, all things James Lindsay because he's been brought into the community of the church to help the church understand things that it has not labored to figure out relative to this diabolical system going on. So I, I, I feel you and, and I pray that this next time around because you guys, the church is in trouble. It's in danger every four years. Right? It's in danger every four years of putting too much confidence in man. Every four years is in danger. If Donald Trump uh, would have gotten through this time around, I would have been on total board with virtually everything that he was doing because it was so well documented. But his ambivalence left me Burden because I was really trying to win the African-American community to him. And every time he, he stood up literally one time and said, God needs me. I said, I, I, can't, I can't talk to no black folk again for the next four years. I said to myself, I hope that clip got nipped. <laughs> I'm, I'm being humorous here, but in a lot of ways I'm not because we lost a lot of our African-American brothers in the Bay Area for me trying to push them towards a biblical view. And then when you kind of put your hope in someone, and then they let you down like that. You just got to suffer it, if you guys know what I mean. Yeah. <clears throat> yes? And the question is about 
pronouns and when can I summarize it like this when we're asked to use a certain pronoun that's not according to their bi biological gender how do we respond as Christians and and so forth is that a fair summary okay yeah this is uh, again just such a, a an issue that's it, it's affecting all of us now it's, at some level isn't it you know but I also I feel like it's a really good example of, um, it goes back to that Black Lives Matter, you gotta post this, right? You've got to, anytime somebody's asking you to speak in a certain way, and if there's force or kind of any kind of, you have to do this or you're breaking the law or you're breaking a policy or whatever it is, uh, boy, that's just wrong and it has to be resisted, you know? Uh, nobody tells us what to say now uh, or how to speak. And I think it's, it's also, it's also an effort to get us to speak untruths. And uh, so this is, it goes back to my last slide about, you know, the, let the lie come, but not through me. You know, I think, for me anyways, this is where I've drawn the line. I'm not going to use those lang that language because it's a lie. It's, it's speaking something that's not true about <coughs> human beings. Uh, you want to do that with a lot of gentleness, depending on the person, right? You have to discern, too, what, you know, the, is it a single person asking you to use a pronoun? Are they doing it with gentleness? Um, or is it you have to do this in some kind of a corporate setting or, you know, in a school or whatever it is, right? There's different settings and you have to respond differently based on those settings. Mm -hmm. But, um, but yeah, I, I tend to see that as uh, this is a, a, a lie. There's, there's male and female, you know, that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm not going to give my voice to, to that lie by using that language. And especially not if someone's compelling me through law or ordinance mm -hmm. or policy mm -hmm. to do it. Mm -hmm. Especially not. That's very un-American. So. Scott. Uh, <clears throat> I, I would just concur with what Scott said. Yeah. Um, I, I, my I guess default when it comes to evangelism is relationship evangelism, mm -hmm. but not to the point of not ever sharing the gospel, uh, which can be the drawback of it. <laughs> but um, I, I, I think developing a relationship is very important there if you have that opportunity. Um, and then through that, show that you care for them and, and yet present the truth. Um, so... Similar to what you're saying, just maybe another way of saying it. Yeah. Pastor Jesse. Just, you know, Nancy Piercy has a really terrific book that I recommend to everyone on this subject. Uh, uh, it is called um, uh, Love Thy Body. Yes. And um, yes. especially if you're dealing with uh, a friend who's either a Christian or a seeker, but might be open to Christian ideas, I think the Christian response to the transgender movement is lean into your how you were created just you know lean into that you know and uh, because that there's a truth to that okay there's a biological truth to that you know and uh, so I always I always encourage people to read that book it's outstanding it's very sensitive uh, I know this is a sticky issue but um, it's also a deadly issue. I think it's really important to see the other side. This issue is, is just destroying people. It's very demonic. 
So, boy, you know, we, we can't be too cowed into too much silence on this one. So, yeah. This is going to emerge. It's going to become exponentially problematic over the next 10 to 15 years. The reason why is they're, challenge, they're taking advantage of the children at the bottom yes. level. So I could talk at length about this. Yeah. So there was a time in which they were uh, experimenting with adults. Now it's almost being legislated. In California, it's certainly the case. So I'll just talk about it a little bit. I will use the, the uh, phraseology, live not by lies. Live not by lies. That's Shoshinsky. All right. And, and basically, he understood that by him compromising, he ended up in the gulags by being silent, by being quiet. And then once he found himself there, he realized he put himself there. In other words, he didn't transport the sin to the Russian uh, communists. He, trans he recognized that sin was in him because had he spoken up, maybe other people would have spoken up. And maybe other people. And maybe other people. Uh, in the situation in which you guys, you young people, are precariously engaging in this kind of thing because high school, middle school, college is a petri dish for um, social engineering at the physical and anatomical level. Just on a theological point, you are dealing with an assault against the incarnation. You are dealing with an assault against the incarnation. Remember, Marxism is really a battle of anti-God versus the true God. This is a battle against the Imago Dei as expressed in our bodies. So you have to know that this is an assault on the incarnation of the second person of the blessed Godhead who assumed the human nature, born as a male, lived as a male, died as a male for all humanity. In order to affirm our biological gender, male and female, as specifically the beauty and uniqueness of a sovereign almighty God of whom there is no match in terms of uh, human technological advancement, science, trans, uh, transhumanism, nothing will match what God has done. And a human being being able to settle with as... Um, uh, Scott was saying with the reality of their flawed physical body as we all are can then live in the hope of the perfection of our body because we have one who came and lived and died and rose again to redeem these bodies to redeem these bodies so redemption of the body can start in the heart it can start in the head it can start in the emotions it can start in the volition and they can overcome the propaganda that brought them, in, brought them into um, uh, hating their bodies. You, you don't need to read the book now. He just explained the book. <laughs> it's like one sentence. <laughs> it's a great book, but Nancy, Nancy Piercy is fabulous as a theologian and as a, an apologist, period, okay, in the matter of total truth. Um, but this is extremely important. As Christians, you need to find the correlation between these uh, fennel expressions, these external expressions that are taking place in our world under this social engineering um, uh, experiment as being directly against the gospel. What is the gospel doing? It's redeeming us, mind, body, and soul. It's redeeming our physicality. It's redeeming our physical being. It's saying that God didn't make a mistake. It's saying that God has a solution to our problems. 
And it's not cutting our body parts up or imagining ourselves to be something other than what God has made us. And in our brokenness in those areas, there is healing. They want to punish us now for uh, employing therapy to bring men and women back into a harmony between their body and their mind. And we got to continue to fight against that. Because this is really about mutilation. This is a neo-mutilation model of destroying the physical body because you guys, we are moving into transhumanism. Okay, I really, and the young people are going to have to deal with this because your peers are going to be, the ones under you are going to be coming up with already having done reassignment, sex reassignment surgery. And then they're going to come to a realization that they made a mistake. And you're going to have to be able to bring grace to them. And help them understand that they bought a false gospel. But there's restoration in the true gospel. There's recovery in the true gospel. And there's ultimate healing in the eschaton. You guys know that. This is the beauty of what God has done for us. Not only in our heart and in our soul. But in our bodies as well. Which are his. So I hope you guys can capture the significance of that going forward. And don't play the body down. That's Gnosticism. Don't play the body down. That's docetism. Now, don't play the body down. If God made us in his image and if Christ bore our humanity, he is a human being for all eternity. That matters at a high theological level. Yeah. Amen. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, and if I could add to that briefly, not only is this a... a uh, person of Christ issue which impacts the work of Christ issue but it's also the person of man issue God made us to be fruitful and multiply and all forms of eugenics whether it's abortion or transgender surgery or whatever it is Satan's way of preventing us from keeping the cultural mandate being fruitful and multiply And, um, and so it's a it's a huge battle in that sense, but um, approaching it very sensitively mm-hmm. with those people, especially if they have gotten to the point where they've done something and now they can't reverse it and they wish they could. Um, or are contemplating that, we would hope we can catch them before and give yeah. them the stats, give yeah. them the facts. Yeah. Uh, Pastor knows material, uh, both Scots have access to really good material and it's burgeoning because there are a lot of people fighting back against this at the professional levels to let us know i hope you guys were able to watch um what is a woman by matt walsh did you guys get a chance to watch that yeah, that's excellent. Go see that. It's really helpful. It will help you understand the struggle going on and the battle, the fierce battle to get our children. Um, it's so important. Yeah. We can't play these things down. Short views is a neat snot week. And uh, we have a society right now that, you know, the extra, we're known, the gen actors are known not to be offended very easily. <laughs> but today's society, it seems like everyone's offended all the time. How do we equip our young generations to take over for us to know that, you know, when you're going out there, 
So the question is simply, how can we as Christians stand up for the truth and for the gospel, knowing that um, we're living in a culture where everybody's offended by everything? Would that be a fair yes. <laughs> summary of what you're saying? How, how can we handle that? I, I like giving the short answer, and then I love hearing the, <laughs> the real answer for Pastor Jesse. Um, yeah, well, I think it's, it's helpful to understand the ideology. In other words, it's weaponized offense because it's weaponized victim status. So, you know, people are looking for opportunities to claim offense so that they can claim that mantle of victimhood because there's benefits that come with that. So it's weaponized that right now. Um, so just knowing that helps you not to fall into that, oh, I don't want to offend you kind of thing. I mean, that's, um, we, having said that, as Christians, you know, we're, we're not called to be offensive or rude. Um, we are called to be truthful and to speak truth and, tr and speak truth and love. But truth itself, just truth itself is going to be offensive, okay? It just is, especially where there's a lot of lies. Um, and I think for me anyways, I have to have a deep conviction that the truth is on the side of God and God's kingdom. And it's good. It's light. It's healing. And the lie is on the side of the devil. It's going to lead to destruction. And if I kind of consort that out, it helps me to say, yeah, even though it may be offensive, I have a duty out of love to speak truthfully, you know, here. And, uh, and not allow claims of offense to silence me because they're certainly going to continue to use those things. But we have to, um, we just have to be people that speak truth, I think. You know, truth, speak, uh, truth speakers right now against the lies. It's just really, really important and not be quiet. I think we, we've, we've come, we're coming out of a time, several really great Christian writers have been writing on this right now where, mm -hmm. uh, I forget um, who the, uh, the young writer was, he talked about America in terms of these um, three stages in terms of the way that the non-believing world views the church. There was kind of the positive, neutral, negative. Have you guys heard this? Um, there was, you know, so positive world would have been when I was a young Christian back in the 80s, to be a Christian in the United States was a positive thing. You're honest, hardworking, it's great. You know, we want to hire you. Um, mm -hmm. Then we kind of moved into this period from about 90s through early 2000s of neutral. Mm -hmm. uh, if that's what you believe good for you, it's not what I believe, you know. Uh, the approach that Christians, a lot of pastors took in this neutral world was to be, let's be really, let's be non-confrontational, let's be nice, let's be winsome, uh, to win a hearing for the gospel. In this, and so that was kind of the era of the nice Christian. But now we're in a negative world, and um, we can expect hostility because of what we believe, and we're not going to be seen as positive, you know, especially our sexual ethic. Uh, so does the nice kind of approach work in the negative world? And I would say no. You're, you can be as nice as you want. You're still going to be offensive and still be thought of negatively in the negative world. So just deal with that and, st <laughs> and speak the truth in love, you know. I think that's, that's the way we have to go, go forward right now. You're, don't try. You know, our goal isn't to try to be seen as nice in the eyes of the world. It's to be faithful to God at the end of the day. So. Yeah, one yeah. thing that I've said at different times is we, in many ways, have entered into the same kind of life that Paul hmm. was facing in Acts. Hmm. 
Um, we don't live in a Christian country anymore. Sure. We live not in a neutral one either. Mm-hmm. It is, on the whole, hostile to, to Christians. And, uh, and so I think Paul is a great example for us to, to, how, to help us to know how to present the truth without being offensive and yet still presenting the truth um, without fear. Um, so certainly the book of Acts, but it's letters too. You can see that. Um, we, um, the one good thing about living in a culture that is so offended is it does force us to be um, very careful and not arrogant or proud or, you know, offensive. Uh, but like you just said, you can't go too far with that. You still have to present the truth. You know, let, let the spirit work. I think it's helpful to, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about being offended. And um, it's just helpful to have that in mind too, you know. Because I think sometimes we can easily jump on that same bandwagon and look for areas where we can claim to be offended. And we might have real reasons to be. Uh, maybe we really were treated wrong. Uh, but I often think about what, you know, the, the love chapter says, right? You know, don't be somebody who keeps a record of those wrongs, right? We're to be people that kind of keep very short lists and are quick to forgive. And so this idea of holding on to grievances, weaponizing grievances, is very unbiblical, and we shouldn't have anything to do with that, frankly. So. If we're solid biblically, and we understand that God is not moved, if we understand God is not moved, no matter how dark the day is, God's still on his throne. If we're solid biblically and we realize that all things are working after the counsel of his own will. This is what you have learned in, 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 in your Westminster Confession of Faith. This is what we have learned in our 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. This is what we have learned as, as Protestants that God is sovereign. He's in control of the good and the evil. That should settle us down first and foremost mm. so that we don't take this battle on as ours primarily. That's one. Mm. Secondly, I think that we need to continue to work on framing our language in a way that allows us to redefine the terms biblically. Mm. You're engaging in terminology definitions. Mm. So the first thing I would say to someone with whom I'm going to have a difference is um, just because I disagree with you, I don't hate you. I love you still. I love you. I don't agree with what you do. I don't agree with your position. I don't agree with your assessment. I love you as a person. I'm obligated to. I would love to talk about these things. Where are you with that? Since you are asking me to value and respect and, and honor your position, I might be able to value and respect you relative to it, but I can't be honest and say I, I honor your position, but I would want you to do the same for me. You can share your view and then let me share my view and, and let's, let's, let's see if we can come to a head around that because uh, I think in the equality of our relationship that, that merits that. Um, and, and therefore, young people don't have to start cowering in some kind of um, uh, apologetic, I'm not talking in the biblical sense, but some kind of apologetic posture where you're already guilty before you try to start having a conversation. That's them redefining it again, and you cannot let them do that. That's what I mean by live not by lies. So you and I have to make sure that we have a healthy faith working by love committed to God first. 
without a, without a Godward allegiance, it's going to be hard to fight the battle of speaking the truth in love and then being ready to suffer for it. As Pastor was saying, Paul's a great model. All the apostles were great models. And of course, Jesus said, I send you into the world as lambs among wolves. So when we got a, when we have a very clear understanding of the New Testament, the New Testament never gave us a perspective that Christians would be the majority, life would be easy, and the gain, the goal is prosperity. That's a false gospel. The true gospel is the prevailing of truth via men and women who speak the truth in love, and uh, and we can we can be confident that God will allow that that effort to be blessed um, and, and maybe and maybe we can also pray I, I, I'm going to have to kind of wind it down for myself here shortly you guys but we can also pray for revival see in our communities we do see one of the things I think is a problem in our churches I, I hate to go bothering you but you know your pastor invited me out <laughs> The church is in the position that it's in because it has not been passionately committed to prayer. I can tell you that now. I can tell you that now. I can tell you stories. I can tell you being on my knees for years for God's discipline of, of me and our ministry and, and, and us neglecting to trust God for everything. Because we've had a Christianity in America that is so pragmatic that you can have church growth with techniques and, and methods and things like that. Of course, we didn't buy into it, but the point still is, as our sister was saying, we can be guilty of all kind of secret idolatries that fundamentally um, affirm that we have not yielded total commitment to God in Christ in all areas of our life. And it can be indicated by a lack of prayer. And because of a lack of prayer, there's a lack of love. And because of the lack of love, there's a lack of faith. See, faith only works by love. And love is only present where the Holy Ghost pours it in. And the Holy Spirit pours it into men and women who cry out for it. That's why Jesus said to the 120, you wait. The power that God, my father gave me, I'm going to give you, and it's going to cause you to be able to walk in a kind of love that is willing to tell men and women the truth, even if it puts you in jail. And God did great and mighty things because they completely depended upon him. If you would ask me where are we at, we're at a time when the church is being taught that it must depend upon God, and I don't think we're there yet. So you young people learn all of the tactics, get all the books, read them, but don't do any of that without getting on your knees asking God to fill you mightily with his spirit so that you can be largely illuminated in your mind and in your understanding, broadly aware of the factors that are in front of you as the battlefield for which God will call you into your gifting to be able to express your gift in love and grace that men and women might come to realize that the solution is Jesus. See, again, this is about the gospel. This is a fallacy in logic. This is uh, within the medical dimension, but I'll give it to you. It's called the fallacy of the monocausal assessment. The fallacy of the monocausal assessment. 
You know, I have had to deal with a, a, a fallacy of a monocausal assessment over the last two and a half years now. And then there are those who also rendered the fallacy of a mono-curative uh, solution. And both the assessment was false and the solution, curative, was false. And many of us understand the fallacy of all things COVID, all things jab. Well, in the critical race theory, the fallacy is all things racist. Everything is bad because it's all racist. And then the solution is anti-racism. Right? You guys understand where I'm going with that. That's the enemy. And you and I have to make sure that we don't fall prey to that false assessment and that false cure because it's not a cure at all. Now, we do believe in a monocausal effect for all of this biblically. It's called sin. And we do believe in a monocurative solution. It's called the grace of God by the atoning work of Jesus Christ presented to all humanity in the gospel. So I hope that helps. <clears throat> well, it is pushing 430 here. <laughs> and uh, I just thank so much of you. So many of you have come out today. I'm glad that you've been with us. And those of you who have joined us online, we're glad that you have joined with us today. And those of you who are going to watch this later, um, hopefully it's, it's a, been an encouragement to you, helpful in your understanding, as well as practically applying some of these things. I said earlier, we're just going to scratch the surface today. But hopefully we've scratched enough to satisfy an itch, so to speak, um, but there's, there's so much more. Uh, I have some of the books on the back table that you might find helpful. Of course, Scott Allen has his books back there as well that you can buy. Um, and, uh, you know, keep learning. Keep uh, listening to things. And uh, may God be pleased to preserve his church in the midst of this society that we live now. And uh, he wants each one of us, Pastor Jesse has said uh, probably a couple dozen times today, young people, a lot of this is going to fall on you. And uh, the direction of our nation is such that um, it's going to be very different than what we've known. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, we pray for you. I pray for my children Mm -hmm. in all of this. Mm -hmm. But God is good he is bigger than than any of these evils and the solution is still the same and that is his word both living and written yes so thank you for coming and uh uh, pastor can i ask you to close us in prayer i'll be honored so father we come to you in your son's gracious name which is a name above every name that you have determined, decreed, and purpose that every knee should bow. So we know the victory is already accomplished. But in the outworking of those things, Lord, help us to take on the form of a servant. Help us to be like our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to walk in the humility of the gospel, but also in its confidence and in its sufficiency and in its scope. Help us who are older to... Uh, facilitate and encourage and provide for the younger as you have told us to do 
that they might fight this battle in the years to come. Lord, we all are in, in, in these times very concerned, very concerned about what's taking place. And we are entering into waters that we've never been in before because of all of this new technology. But we trust you and we rely upon you. And we know at length, oh God, that everything that you have purpose designed and have determined will come to pass even as you have saw fit to bring it to pass. Help us to be a part of the solution. Help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Help, help us to love the body of Christ um, as you love the body of Christ too. Strengthen us, Lord. We come to you on the grounds of your son's shed blood, which is our cleansing, our purging, our washing. We come to you on the grounds of his righteousness, which is our standing, irrevocable, immutable, unchangeable for all eternity. We come to you in Jesus' name, amen.